Welcome to CTSNet to Go, bringing your discussions about the most relevant topics in cardiothoracic surgery. The Cardiothoracic Surgery Network, known as CTSNet, aims to connect the global cardiothoracic surgical community through communication, collaboration, education, and interaction among cardiothoracic surgeons and their teams across the globe. Learn more at ctsnet.org. My name is Shanda Blackman, and I'm just one of the hosts of CTSNet2Go. In this podcast, you will be exposed to one of the roundtables that will show you what surgeons today are talking about. Welcome to this series with the Giants of Cardiac Surgery. My name is Joel Dunning and we're here at Amex in Moscow with an absolute legend of cardiac surgery. Uh, Bud Fraser, I'm absolutely delighted to talk to you. Um, Bud Fraser trained with uh, Denton Cooley, Michael DeBakey. You've done 1,700 heart transplants, 1,000 VADs, and you have done uh, the first uh, heart mate implantation, the first Yarvik transplantation, and really you are the history of artificial uh, implantation. So <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you, and maybe we can start by just telling us about how you developed and evolved the first artificial hearts. One of my, my cardiologists counted up a few years ago that I'd done 1,200, over 1,200 heart transplants. I'd actually never paid any attention to it. But uh, I, I, I did when I looked at it, and I, uh, I did it because I was in a private group, and I was the only academic in the private group, and nobody else would help me. So I didn't do it because I particularly wanted to. And the same for the pumps. I either did them or helped on at least a thousand of them. But, uh, but again, if I had somebody to help, I, I would have, uh, it, it would have been nice, let's say. But there wasn't anyone else. There wasn't anyone else because in, in the, I, I was at St. Luke's Hospital, which when I started was a 900 bed hospital. And we did more heart surgery at St. Luke's than any place in the world until 19, 1994 when the Cleveland Clinic passes. It was just one hospital. And we also uh, did more than all of Western Europe until 1984. We did 5,000 pumps in a year. Anyway, so that was one of the reasons I got so involved in pumps because nearly every day we would have somebody that wouldn't come off bypass. And uh, I, uh, I had started in pumps as a medical student. Uh, and um, and so I saw all those patients. And you actually were massaging a young patient, massaging with your hand, wondering why you couldn't well, turn this into a mechanical well, machine. That's true. I I got into the whole artificial heart uh, uh, regime by um, 
When I went to Baylor College of Medicine, I started in 1963. At that time, there were like 75 of us in the class and maybe three women, you know. <laughs> and uh, I, uh, we had to be on a, a, a research paper every year, which was a very good thing. We had two afternoons a week to work on. And as we started in medical school on, in September, they gave us until the 1st of November to decide on our first year research. And I was standing at the elevator in, uh, in the Jewish Research Wing of Baylor College of Medicine on October the 30th. Uh, and a friend of mine from uh, the university named Frank Polk came up and Frank was what we called a gunner. Then he's one of those guys who was always way ahead of the game. He's always studying and, and very accomplished. And I was just the opposite. You know, I, I went to class when I had to and studied when I had to. But Frank came up to me and he said, what are you doing for your research papers? Do you know November the 1st? And I said, well, Frank, I've got another day. I hadn't thought about it. And he said, I knew you wouldn't have done anything. I've already signed you up for the research project. I can't do it all. I have to have somebody else. And we're gonna do artificial hearts with Domingo Leota. So that's how I got into the whole business, totally by accident. Frank actually had an intentional tremor. And as much as everybody wanted to be a heart surgeon those days, I ended up doing all the surgery. Frank went into internal medicine. He was one of the youngest professors of medicine uh, at Johns Hopkins in the U.S., one of our uh, outstanding medical schools, and there's a wing of Johns Hopkins Hospital named for him, the Polk Wing, and uh, as he tragically died of a brain tumor in his 40s. But that's how I got into it. Yeah. And you were right there in those early days with uh, Michael DeBakey and Denton Cooley, and even when he, he tried his first mechanical heart, that was in your era there. <laughs> Well, I, you know, I worked, as I said, uh, with Domingo Leota on the pumps. Uh, not just the total heart, in fact, that most of the work was done on the L-Vans. Because Dr. Tobacchi did do the first successful L-Van. And it was when I was on in service, I remember that woman very well. She was a very brave woman. She was a Mexican from Mexico and the pump was placed outside the body. And when Dr. DeBakey removed the pump, he did it in the ICU. He didn't take her to the operating room. He just put a bunch of iodine on her and gave her some xylocaine and cut the grafts off as they came all out of the skin and covered them up. And I remember watching him and he kept saying, hold still, my dear, hold still, you know, in his, his deep uh, Southern accent. But, uh, and, and Dr. DeBakey had instituted the whole artificial heart program when I was a medical student and, and was very instrumental in starting the, the entire program. And was the intention to have a complete artificial heart and it was roller pumps in, in that area? Well, it was the, the intention, but as they got into it, they realized it was very hard to get a calf through. <clears throat> they did eight calves, two of them when I was there and in the in the laboratory with them, and they all died. 
and uh, they never lasted a day. And but they a, they were on the hard lung machine for six or eight hours, and you put a calf on the hard lung machine for six or eight hours and don't do anything to it. Don't open the chest, and half of them will die. But uh, and that was why the Domingo Leota started going over to talk to Dr. Cooley about Dr. Cooley putting the artificial heart in uh, as a bridge to transplant. And uh, I said, fortunately, when that finally did occur in a, uh, April of 1969, I was in Vietnam, which uh, everybody in, that was in Houston at the time told me that I was much safer in Vietnam in a, in a combat, uh, flight combat unit, helicopter combat. Anyway, so that's how I got in it, and I and uh, I think Vietnam had a lot. I was in a combat unit. We lost a lot of young people, which at, at my age I was uh, I was used to people dying, but not you know, people that I had just had breakfast with, you know, and uh, coming back with their heads shot off and that sort of thing. And that's, I think that's when I really decided, I thought I'd like giving up medicine, but then I thought I'd stay and work on the pumps. And, and one of the things was that you alluded to, I remember uh, this young Italian boy uh, who I'd worked up as a medical student and Dr. DeBakey had replaced his heart valve. He's a real nice young man, he was 17 or 18. And he did very well, but he arrested the night of the surgery, and in those days they opened the chest immediately. And uh, I was the youngest, and probably the strongest at that time of anybody there, and I just got out of medical school. I was just out of undergraduate school, and played football, so anyway. So I massaged his heart, and as long as I was massaging his heart, he would look up at me, of course. And but they, we couldn't get it started, so so that was very depressing for him because I thought if I, my hand could keep this boy alive, we certainly should make a pump they could. And uh, and again, I was working with Domingo Leona too. And really, I suppose the the sort of breakthrough of, of left ventricular devices were the sort of continuous flow devices and the HeartMate 2 which you helped to develop and put the first one in really. So maybe you could tell us a bit about how, how the research evolved into well, those. Uh, we, we started working with pulsatile pumps of course, mm. trying to duplicate nature which is what we do in surgery uh, with all our devices. But, uh, and we could make them work and the first postal pump to be approved by the FDA was the one we developed in our lab in, in, uh, at the Texas Heart Institute. That was approved in 94. But the problem with the postal pumps is they, they uh, uh, failed usually within about 18 to 24 months. And by the early 80s, I did my first heart transplant in July of 1982. And by the uh, mid-80s, we were uh, they we were doing transplants, and it seemed that the only value of the pumps would be as a bridge to transplant, which of course would save individual lives, 
But as I've said, Dr. Crawford, Dr. Shumway, who I knew quite well, uh, would always harass me at the medical meetings with the fact that epidemiologically the postal pumps were doing nothing but adding more people to the transplant list, which had a finite limit of donors. And uh, that's when I uh, got interested in doing the continuous flow pumps in an effort to make a more durable pump. Yeah. So, so you've just given us an amazing presentation uh, all about the evolution of these continuous flow pumps and you've even shown us the, the latest evolution which is a, a total artificial heart, all just one single pump, uh, which is an amazing device. Maybe you can tell us about that and about where you think this, this specialty is going with that pump. Well, uh, I would like to just uh, reiterate something because there were several reasons that continuous flow pumps were not supposed to work and the mechanical ones were it would have to be at such a high RPM that it would cause hemolysis in the blood and we disproved that with the hemopump and Rich Walper uh, made that pump in uh, California and brought it down we put that in place in 1988 and it's descended is what we call the Impala pump uh, now in the US and I was instrumental in getting that pump started as well but the, the, the for a long-term implantable pump Rob Jarvik uh, isn't recognized enough because he was able to make bearings work that were not lubricated nobody nobody likes to talk about bearings including myself but bearings were absolutely necessary in the first pumps such as the Jarvik and the uh, Heartmate 2 and uh, because the Heartmate 2 evolved I was the only medical consultant for both companies and after the hemopump was successful the company that was making an implantable pump by then Jarvik and I had it's early 90s we'd worked on a continuous flow pump for over seven years and we pretty much perfected the bearings I was at a uh, meeting with the Nimbus company and the Manic <clears throat> and then John Moise, who was a very talented uh, uh, engineer, graduated from Caltech, which is one of our best engineering schools, and he'd been in the space, and uh, he was trying to magnetically suspend the axial flow. And uh, I was half listening to him, but I finally said, uh, why don't you put bearings on that, John? because uh, that would be a lot easier. And he said, Bud, you don't know anything about engineering. You can't have a non-lubricated bearing in the bloodstream. And I said, well, you're right, John, I didn't know that. And Rob Jarvik didn't know that. But more importantly, there's a calf down in Houston that's had one in for 10 months. And he, he obviously is not aware of that. So, and that's how the hemopump what, uh, what do you call the Heartmate 2 got started because they just put bearings on it and, and uh, it, that pump evolved and it, uh, it shows how uh, and it, it's important I think historically we've never written this up but the Heartmate 2 uh, for a lot of uh, the company went broke and they moved to Pittsburgh and the guys at Pittsburgh were good guys but they hadn't spent a lot of time in research with the pumps. 
and they did the subsequent development of the Heartmate II, and they put it in, in Europe. They put it in 11 patients, and 10 of them died within the first month. And the only one that lived was Magdi Yacoub did one, and he took it out in two weeks. So you wonder if he needed it or not. I never said anything to Magdi about it. But at any rate, they brought it to me, and they put the center titanium, which we put in the postal pumps, to facilitate blood covering was inside the pump. And when I saw that, I told the engineers, just get rid of the center titanium and uh, it'll be a good pump. And I put the first one of those pumps, the clinical pumps in, in November of 2003. Yeah. Do you remember something of that first patient? Yeah, I remember him quite well because he was a young boy uh, from the, uh, Dominican Republic and he could barely speak English and he had no money, no insurance and of course in America that's, there's some good things about the best thing about American medicine is it's a business and the doctor and the hospitals are working for the patient the worst thing about American medicine is it's a business and the doctors and the hospitals are working for themselves so they wouldn't pay for it but the company since they hardly had a choice, uh, but I don't want to impugn them. It was very generous of them to give us the pump without charging, and and he did uh, very well, and uh, lived another seven years, and only died after we transplanted. I mean, you said a very interesting thing in your talk. You you showed us a four-year-old that had had a an art. A, an LVAD, yeah. and, and you said actually a transplant's a bad operation for very young people, and you said you're experiencing well, children's transplants. I, 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 I probably shouldn't phrase it as bad, I just think it's, uh, it's like the early days of chemotherapy. You get a response, but it's not a lifetime response. Mm -hmm. And uh, of the first 48 children I did from five months to 14, between 1982 and 1990, and I did about 600 heart transplants doing that, but, but I did all the children also. Uh, and uh, there's only two of them living now. And, and they both have had three heart transplants. So we have to try to do better. I don't think it was a bad operation. It was life-saving for the children at the time. This little five-month-old girl that we did uh, lived to be 13, went to school, and was a joy to her parents, so I wouldn't want to impugn it in that way. I can say it in a, in a medical talk to a bunch of doctors, but I don't want the public to even uh, sue that in, because it's not, it's life-saving, but I just mean we have to try to do better. Mm -hmm. And so where do you see the future? So, so we can implant them, but there are problems with the, the, the power supply. And I think you talked about sort of nuclear power supplies or percutaneous power supplies. Where do you see the future going? Well, uh, you know, Dr. DeBakey particularly was instrumental after the first, the failure of the first uh, heart transplants in 71. Chris Bernard did one in 67. Uh, By 71, there were, you know, less than 20 of them. 175 heart transplants that were done, still living. So there was a moratorium placed on that. And we were working in the 70s for, uh, to develop, you know, uh, a long-term 
pump as an end uh, therapy, not as a bridge to transplant because we weren't doing transplant. And uh, as I told you this story with with uh, Shumway, it, as we started doing transplants again, it became obvious we had to do a more durable pump. And that, to me, is the greatest satisfaction I've had to date with the continuous flow pumps. All of them came from around my desk in my lab, the Jarvik, the Heartmate 2, the Heartmate 3, and the, and the uh, 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 here's what happens when you get to be 80 years old, the, the, uh, the, uh, 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 the other continuous flow, uh, hardware. Hardware, yeah. See, that's what happens. <laughs> you know, my mother told me I, when I was 70, I'd start forgetting things. And she was right in 80. But I developed that hardware. It was my idea around my desk in 1994 to make a pump that'll go on the right side as well as the left. Because we never had a right sided pump. And the hardware is a good right sided pump. We've had it in over eight years in patients. And uh, it can do a lot. And that child, that uh, four-year-old, it was a hardware pump, which is a, a smaller pump. And he's uh, nine years old now. Uh, and he certainly would have died without it. I would like to have a pump that could carry him through, you know, and that's mm -hmm. the goal. He, we may end up having to transplant him but uh, it would be nice if we could have a mechanical pump. The other thing that I think is the future, and the last thing I'd like to emphasize is nearly all of these patients with idiopathic cardiomyopathies get better with time. The initial treatment for heart failure, uh, George Birch at, uh, at Tulane used to put patients to complete bed rest to rest the heart. And about 30% of the idiopathics would get better and they would be able to be discharged. And uh, I've explained a number of these pumps, about 19, I think, last time, uh, because the heart had improved. So I'm, I'm hoping that that will be the ultimate goal, to uh, carry these patients till their heart can improve enough that they will be done. We can take the pump out and spare them a transplant and spare them a lifetime with the pump. Now, also, the one thing, the only reason these are powered percutaneously, that is a driveline coming out, is we had no funding and that was very uh, it, uh, inexpensive to do it that way. We developed transcutaneous powering in the 70s. The Abicor, which was a 50-watt pump that we put in uh, 17 of them, we powered completely transcutaneously. Yeah. The pump called the Aero Pump was completed, uh, powered completely transcutaneously. So that is here now. Mm. And why but, haven't they been a success? Was it a very yeah. big battery, wasn't it? Or? No, 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 it was just, let us say, I, you know, back to my original statement about American medicine. I used to harass these various companies once they became commercialized to power it transcutaneously. But that would have cost them about, I think, $3,500 more. And they were selling the pumps percutaneously. Mm. And in fact, you know, it's just business. As one of the, the uh, presidents of one of the companies said to me, you know, just to, to quote uh, 
the Godfather, which I said, you know, it's nothing personal. It's just business, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I could understand that, but now we have to develop this transcutaneous power. The, the sad thing is, it doesn't really be developed. It's already been done. And the and because. In America, the government doesn't do anything but they issue RFPs, requests for proposals. And the original request for proposals for an implantable, long-lasting pump when we weren't doing transplant included you couldn't break the skin. It had to be transcutaneous. It couldn't be percutaneous. So that work was already done in the 70s. We, we, we'd already done all that transcutaneous. And we developed a nuclear plutonium-238 pump the size of my thumb. We put it in a bunch of baboons and you never want to get in crosswise with a baboon because they're strong and they're mean. They didn't like being there. And, uh, but we put it under to see if there would be some difficulties with the heat production, you know, which was obvious. There never was any, and a plutonium-238 battery can power a 50 watt artificial heart for 82 years no. and and the really? and the pump that we're working on which is uh, developed by an australian named daniel Timms, which just has one moving part at uh and this is totally magnetically suspended uh is about 10 watts oh my god so and how it, big is that plutonium it's about the size of my thumb. It's a little bigger than my thumb. And uh, as I said, all the, the toxicity work was done. We were worried about, and there were over 2,000 uh, plutonium uh, uh, powered uh, pacemakers in plant, you know, right. and because they never wore out. Yeah. And uh, there was a, a man named Rappaport who wrote a number of papers on it. He was a very advocate of the core atomic pacemaker and uh, there were never any problems with them long term in patients as far as increased malignancies and the things that we were worried about. The one thing about the baboons I remember the best, somebody had the idea to bring a black and white TV in because the baboons were always mad and they loved to watch the the black and white TV. They particularly love the soaps. And uh, <laughs> heaven protect you if you got between the baboons and the TV, you would hear their wrath. Anyway, there's the, uh, we've come a long way. I think we will still have a long way to go. We've had these pumps in over 15 years now with one pump. Wow. So the durability issue, none of the pumps have been pumped to mechanical failure. They failed either because of improper uh, or kinking in the implant or because everything has to be lined up perfect, perfectly. Or infections. They get a lot of infections with them. That's the biggest problem we have. And we can solve that. Uh, that's already been solved. Yeah, Just well, a business problem. Yeah. Well, you, you made the prediction today that in 10 years' time there'll be no more heart transplants and we'll all. Well, I think that's a possibility, you know. In 2005, when they were ever, they just done the rematch trial, and I was at a, at a, a Gordon conference, which are these uh, government-sponsored conferences. And I said, and in 10 years, you won't be using 
postal pumps. And of course, everybody laughed. They just the three months trial had come down. There was a lot of enthusiasm for postal pumps. They quit making them in 2012. So you were right with that prediction. Yeah, and I, I don't know if I lived to see the other prediction, so I'm safe on that one. Well, if your heart starts failing, we might give you some plutonium, maybe, yeah. in your last 80 years. But, but that technology is, is there, and, and I think and the transplants are wonderful things. They've meant a lot to a lot of patients. That I have several patients that have lived over 30 years with them. It's just that they, uh, they're good, but we have to try to do better. Great. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking okay. to you, and it was an amazing talk you gave today, and, uh, and I hope you do see that new era. It's well, uh, been a real pleasure talking to you. So, myself at CTSNet, just like to say thank you very much. All right. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to CTS Net to Go, your resource for podcasts focusing on cardiothoracic surgery. Find more discussions as well as surgical videos and other cardiothoracic surgery resources at ctsnet.org. You can also keep up with CTS Net by subscribing to the YouTube channel at CTS Net Video, by following at CTS Org on Twitter or by liking CTS Net's page on Facebook. I'm Shanda Blackman. Thank you for joining us on this latest episode of CTS Net to Go. Have a great day.